Hello, Sarah Marshall. <laughs> Hello, Alex Steed. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you. We are going to talk about Home Alone with uh, our friend Ann Terrio. I'm so excited. I am too. This was a fantastic conversation. What's your one or two or maybe even three line pitch about what Home Alone is about? Ooh, Home Alone is about a little boy who wishes for his family to disappear and then it happens and he has to deal with that. Yeah, I think that that's exactly right on. Mm -hmm. I don't want to give away anything we've talked about to this point, but what were some of your favorite parts of this conversation? What are you most excited for people to hear about? Mm. I am excited for people to just hear us wax rhapsodic about how much we all love Catherine (laughs) O'Hara and also me get schooled for saying that no one knew who Catherine O'Hara was in 1990, which really just means that I didn't because I was two. (laughs) (laughs) That's forgivable. Other than other things that you've heard in your life, it's okay to be a child. That's true. That's the theme of this show. Yeah. And I am happy to know that Catherine O'Hara has been like part of the American zeitgeist for much longer than I appreciated. Imagine what it would be like without her. Um, Even worse. So that's not even worth contemplating. And I'm excited for people to hear Anne, who I think was really lovely. And we all talked about our families and our Christmas feelings and our feelings about our protagonist in this movie, Kevin McAllister, who is all of us this year, as many of us perhaps will find ourselves eating macaroni and cheese and milk out of a wine glass, or at least I will. People will hear this conversation about who knew about Catherine O'Hara when. So interesting that you say you didn't know about her because you were two. And I realize how specific a situation it is that I was a seven-year-old who knew about who Catherine O'Hara was. And maybe that is not representative of how much America knew who Catherine O'Hara I mean, was. who knows? This could really get in a few directions. You could say... Your specific experience of being a seven-year-old with the TV diet that you had made you unusually aware of Catherine O'Hara. Or you could say Catherine O'Hara was so present in the American mind that even a child (laughs) (laughs) knew about her. I just think you were a lucky boy. (laughs) I, I was lucky. I remember this interaction so vividly. I was six or seven. And my uncle was visiting us from Massachusetts. And his name is Phil. And I loved Ghostbusters so much. And it was on TV and I was pointing out to him and I said, that is Peter Venkman. His real name is Bill Murray. He was on Saturday Night Live. That is Harold Ramis. He was on SCTV. Like I would just, I explained it. And I just remember him (laughs) looking at my mother, whose name was Nancy and going, your kid's weird, Nance. (laughs) (laughs) And he was right. In the words of Jack Dawson in a deleted scene, you got sent to the wrong address. <laughs> um, so uh, quickly, just for people who don't know, Sarah, what is Wire Dads about? I'm so happy you asked. Wire Dads is about dads that are made of wire, <laughs> not wood, not felt, not clay, only Wire Dads. I'm just kidding. Why Our Dads is a show where we watch movies that have themes of fatherhood in them. Home Alone really hardly has any fatherhood theme at all, but we wanted to talk about it, so whatever. And we talk about how we learn what to accept and what to ask for from the depictions of fathers that we see in the culture that we grew up with. 
that is the truth. This weekend, Simon London, who listens to the show, talked about us on BBC Radio London and said that this is his favorite podcast of the year, which is so flattering. And then read our description to the host of the show. <laughs> and you could hear her brain break a little bit. <laughs> Just in a way of like, what is this? Why is it fun? <laughs> Absolutely. I, everyone was lovely about it. It was so nice. It made my weekend to hear it. It was lovely. Just to hear someone... <laughs> explaining what this show is about to someone who's not ready to hear that it's like about people who talk about dads in in a popular culture context and she's like all right it doesn't sound fun it sounds like we're counting salmon or something yeah i think that it is possible that I should rewrite our explanation of what this show is. I don't think it gets to the fun as quickly as it should. And, you know, as we talk about a lot. We talk about in every other episode, there are certainly some very hard things about the subject matter, sometimes in almost every episode. And if you're a person who has baggage around any of this stuff, the prospect of talking about dads is itself terrifying. Oh, I have a, I have a new description. Okay. Why Are Dads is a show where two people talk about movies, often three people talk about movies, and they don't interrupt each other very much at all. That's it. We got it. Nailed it. <laughs> Great. <laughs> a quick note to remind you all that you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash whyardads. Last week, we featured a bonus episode there that was made up of odds and ends of the conversation in our Christmas story episode. Uh, these were the bits that just didn't fit into the episode, like us talking about uh, her dad's interest in goths <laughs> and uh, with Shirley Manson, interestingly enough. And this week, we are going to talk about what we would like to see more of in comic book movies. And we offer some of our personal predictions for 2021. Again, that is available at patreon.com slash wiredads. Oh, we also mention a bit about nine to five in there, just in case that's something you'd be interested in. And as always, if you are not in a position to support in this way, just being here is enough. Truly, we are so glad to have you in this community. Now, let's go talk Home Alone with writer, author, and now Home Alone commentator, Anne Terrio. There are 15 people in this house. You're the only one who has to make trouble. I'm the only one getting dumb-dumb. You're the only one acting up. Now, get upstairs. I am upstairs, dummy. I didn't want to see you again for the rest of my whole life, and I didn't want to see anybody else either. I hope you don't mean that. You'd feel pretty sad if you woke up tomorrow morning and you didn't have a family. No, I wouldn't. What else could we be forgetting? Kevin! Does Santa Claus have to go through customs? Keep the change, you filthy animal. Where is it? Yeah, never mind, I just get it. How do you like it, huh? You jerk! Get that cake for him! I don't care, you morons! Come and get me. You guys give up, or you're thirsty for more? Have a good trip! Bring me back some French! question okay i had this thought the other day i was talking to someone who lives in nova scotia and didn't ask because we were on kind of a heavy topic but i was like wait is maine like the georgia of the maritimes is new hampshire in the maritimes because then i would say maybe new hampshire is because they're weird <laughs> 
That's how we feel, Anne. (laughs) (laughs) I I mean, like, specifically compared to Canada. And I just remember this feeling I had when I, like, drove into New Brunswick. I was like, oh, Maine seems like the top of the known world, but it's actually just, like, underneath this cute province with weird jams at the gas station. (laughs) So how does this place that is basically Maine feel about Maine? (laughs) And and you haven't spent time up in Acadia, too, where it's, like, a whole difference. It is very much the bottom of the top in that case. I really want to because I, yeah, I'm also fascinated by the fact that there's like the populous part of Maine, which people go to and are like, this place is crazy. And it's like, this is the part (laughs) with people in it. This is the population center. (laughs) One Christmas, we drove to my grandparents in Nova Scotia and we lived uh, in southwestern Ontario at the time. So it's like a two day drive. It was the worst. My... My dad forgot to pack half of the presents. So my mom was already mad at him. My mom was seven months pregnant. We hit like a snowstorm driving through northern New Brunswick. And then there's just, there's nothing there. And you hit, there was a sign and it was like, this is the last gas station for 200 kilometers. Oh my God. I don't even know how big a kilometer is, but I'm like, that's a lot of a a thing. That's not good. I think it's 0.6 miles. There you go. That's too many kilometers. Too many kilometers. (laughs) (laughs) I just watched, I attempted to watch this horror movie called Centigrade. That's about this couple that like gets trapped in a car when like there's freezing rain and they pull over and then they go to sleep and they wake up and they've been iced and, and snowed in. And it was actually not a very good movie. They really wasted a premise there. But I was like, this is a good premise because this could happen to people in like 20 of the 50 states, (laughs) probably all the provinces. Like, of course, if you're going to try and drive across New Brunswick in December, like shit's going to happen. Holiday travel is like really one of the most amazingly absurd things that humans insist on doing every year like not just this year but at like and you know we're talking about a movie that takes place in chicago which is a massive hub every other year it's like flights are delayed there's snow and it's like yeah yeah that's what happens every year we love to do that i feel like we have that like if we weren't masochists we would have more major family oriented holidays in summer and like we created what christmas is to north americans in North America, I think, basically. Like this we we did this on purpose, I, I suspect. Wild. Hello, Sarah Marshall. Hello, Alex Steed. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you. We're recording a very special episode about a very special movie with a very special person. Yes. Very special person. Please announce yourself. Uh, hi, this is Ontario, and I'm really happy to be here. Uh, thank you so much for being here. And and tell us a couple of things about yourself. I live in Toronto. I have three cats. Uh, I have a kid who is nine and uh, I'm a writer. So that's like four facts about me. Those are great things. Sarah, what, what are we watching and what are we discussing with Anne today? We are watching and discussing Home Alone, which I'm so excited to discuss because I, until this year, was pretty meh about this movie and then really bonded with it because I was like, this is the theme of our whole Christmas thing this year. Like, this is our year with this movie, you know? And I really fell in love with it. I see it immediately, but how do you how do you mean that this is the year for Home Alone? For people listening to this episode in the future in a time when we have, like, traumatically wiped clean <laughs> our culture during this time, 
in 2020, I am I am saying this on December 3rd. I know that because I'm on my third jam from my Bon Mama jam advent calendar <laughs> that my mom got me. Great gift, by the way. So in this pandemic season, we are currently experiencing a moment where yesterday we saw, I believe, a little over 2,600 deaths from coronavirus. So the single highest number of deaths in this country since this pandemic has begun. I don't know why we're not calling it an epidemic. I'm sure it's not technically that, but like you don't say outbreak is a pandemic movie. You say it's an epidemic movie because that's a scarier word. And maybe we should be saying it. It's a thought. Because um, an epidemic, when it's just in one country or a few countries, oh. but pandemic is the whole world. In China, it was still an epidemic, but pandemic is actually the worst one. Wow. That's so funny. I don't know why I've spent like almost 10 months thinking that pandemic is less bad. It just sounds... I think it's because it reminds me of pan-Asian cuisine, which is a good thing. <laughs> and pansexuals, which get to go whole hog all across the spectrum. Pansexuals. Yes, exactly. I have very positive associations with pan and very negative associations with epi. Because <laughs> with those, I can only think of demic and then pen. Yeah, which is a needle. <laughs> yeah, which might kill you also. And like humans aren't logical, which I continue to illustrate to myself every day. But anyway, we're going through that, and <laughs> we are living in a country where some people and leaders are trying to persuade others not to travel for the holidays, and where it certainly seems like it would be possible to do something, anything stronger than, like, mealy-mouthedly telling people they really shouldn't travel and then just sort of ignoring it when they do yeah, we're just living in a time where I think it would be nice if people stayed put and just accepted that maybe they would like some peace and quiet away from their families to eat macaroni and cheese. And I am really vibing with that. I'm like, this is my year to do that. And I am choosing that life. And this movie is the only Christmas movie I can think of that really is so on the nose for this experience. And I'm so happy we have it. Kevin McAllister stays put. He does he plants <laughs> way to plant kevin <laughs> and what is your background and experience with this movie uh yeah so i saw it when i was a kid and at that point my i was very firmly team kevin and felt you know he was very badly used by all of the adults around him and now i'm a mom and I have a kid around the same age as kevin my son is 9 and i think kevin is 8 and i'm a little bit more team parent obviously not leaving your child behind when you go to Paris as long as you're not team uncle Jerry you know because that's like a whole other food group yeah do you have an uncle Jerry in your family who's mean to your kid no good <laughs> sorry to put you on the spot in case uncle Jerry's listening <laughs> I do feel like this is the greatest sin of the McAllister family though of Kevin's immediate family is complicity you mean because they let Jerry be a dick to Kevin Yes. My dad would have cuffed the fuck out of Jerry. I, I say a lot Good. of I say a lot of bad things, not bad, a lot of absentee things about my dad because that's all true. But Jerry would not have been able to be Jerry in my household. As someone who is uh, has been a pacifist my whole life, but who is definitely entering the years when I can notice the title sway of maternal feelings affecting my thoughts. Jerry deserves to have a fragment of bone 
driven from his nasal cavity into his brain. Like, you don't talk to a child that way. <laughs> I was going to say, it's also totally the kind of thing that I could have seen in my family growing up being handled that, like, you know, they had this real philosophy of the adults have to be a united front in front of the kids, and then the real shit goes down when the kids aren't around. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's true. I, I could imagine, you know, my mom, like, not saying anything at the time. And then when we're in bed being like, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> so we did an episode on uh, John Hughes's other Christmas film, which came out one year before this one, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. And then Home Alone, he wrote but did not direct, which you can tell because it's very... I don't think you would ever get a John Hughes movie with a John Williams score. They're just not compatible flavors. As we learned from that previous movie, it feels as if this vision of parent and child relationships owes something to mid-century America. Like there's something in Home Alone that reminds me of the way the Drapers live, you know, and where the, the kids are eating at the kids' table in the kitchen and the adults are, you know, the adults are flying in first class. I think there's something that really was definitely happening in the 80s and really happened in the 90s where parents wanted to be very involved and present in their kids' lives in a way that we don't see these parents doing. And I feel like they're getting punished for being anachronistic in a way. Yeah, and as far as sort of how parenthood and like family life is represented in this this 1990 gigantic family film versus where we're at now, like what, what did you notice as far as differences? In a lot of ways, the the opening scenes felt familiar to me because I grew up in a big family where there we had big family get-togethers with lots of extended family around, and it was chaotic. And, and there was a kid's table, which we actually loved because we didn't want to sit with the adults because at the kid's table, you could just like fart around and do whatever you wanted. And it's funny. It felt very recognizable in that. And also even in just kind of how the chaos plays out and the parent just kind of like picks one kid at the middle of the chaos to punish as like a scapegoat or proxy for the rest of the kids. Kevin, you did the most recent thing. <laughs> and let that be an example to the rest of you. Do we know which kids are Kevin's siblings? We do. I figured this out. It took me like three times of watching it. There's Biff, Tawny. Who are, who are they? <laughs> There's Buzz, Big Pete, oh, Big Pete. Linny, who might be the blonde girl who thinks she can speak French. Mm. There's another girl that has brown hair. I think that's all. Kevin's siblings are like the unmemorable kids with no lines and buzz. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. And yeah, and you only remember Mike Morona as Big Pete because that is where he made his impact. Because he had lines in that project and he doesn't really talk in this movie. <laughs> There's the kid with glasses who explains to Buzz some things. I don't know exactly what he explains, but he is he he's a cousin. He must be. He's one of the cousins that his parents are in France because there's Uncle Frank and like his dowdy wife and they have the two really little kids are theirs. Mm -hmm. The ones you mentioned are Kevin's siblings. And then there's like two, I think two older girls plus that kid with the glasses who must be the French connection. Yeah. This is, <laughs> this is the first, this is actually the first time in watching this movie that I've paid attention to the logistics of them getting to like, why are they going to France? Yeah. It's because there is a brother who we never see who has a corporate job in France who paid for everyone in the States to come over and see him. 
like 14 people. Yeah, this is the first time, too. I mean, I only really watched this movie once before this year, but like, I think it actually speaks highly to the way this movie was made. That I've seen this movie like five times now, three of them in the last month, and I cannot tell you confidently how many kids are in this family or what their names are or who they all belong to. I think that's what this movie was going for. That's kind of amazing in a way because it's like once you get to a certain amount, what does it matter? You are Catherine O'Hara, basically, through the experience of what you're like, who even are these people in my house? Yeah. (laughs) And Kevin is the only memorable child for us. Exactly. And he's memorable because he's a little bit of a nightmare for totally understandable reasons. But he says mean cutting things to a parent. Yeah. And you are a parent. Kevin says some shitty things. What are the ones that stand out for you? <laughs> the one that always gets me is when Catherine O'Hara says, go upstairs. And he goes, I am upstairs, dummy. <laughs> <laughs> I remember seeing that on TV. And for a long time, this was my only memory of this whole movie. I just saw this one scene and I was like, he's right. He is upstairs. And I was like eight at the time. I was like, these people are crazy. They built so many stories on their house. This is a them problem. I would never let my kid talk to me the way I mean because he the mom does let him get away with saying quite a few bad things until she kind of hits her limit and you know you see it so beautifully on Catherine O'Hara's face there is a point where she just breaks Mm. and it's when he says I wish I didn't have a family I I hope I don't see you for the rest of my life or whatever and her face just like something has broken in her and then that that's the point when she's like okay Catherine O'Hara's face is so beautifully expressive and almost cartoon-like. And in that moment, it stops. Mm. It does not move. And it's terrifying. Because <laughs> the scariest moments in childhood, for me anyway, are the ones where you realize you've broken mom. <sighs> and you're like, oh, no, no. Like, I take it back. And 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 you can't. It's like the, the engine on the orca in Jaws. Like, she just, <laughs> you burned her out. <laughs> the ship's going under yeah, and I feel like it's it's so sympathetic in this movie. A, because, I mean, the, I think the casting of Catherine O'Hara is so important. And I want to talk about that for a second, because, like, moms are a constant theme, but always in a subtextual way on this show. But, like, we have a mom on. We have, like, this this duo of, like, wonderful Canadian moms. <laughs> no one knew who Catherine O'Hara was in, in 1990, or if they did, they knew her as the lady from Beetlejuice. Who is she and what is she bringing to this? Well, I mean, Canadians knew who she was because she was a CTV with like John Candy and Eugene Levy and Rick Moranis. But we weren't listening to you about anything as always. So we just were like, who is this wonderful woman? This is actually not true because in when I was a kid, Nickelodeon only had four hours of programming and every... <laughs> And uh, no, no shit. And everything else was reruns of the first five seasons of Saturday Night Live in SCTV. Never mind. I lied. I'm a liar. People knew. <laughs> so I was genuinely curious about this. And I want to know about SCTV's impact in Canada. I honestly don't know. Like, who are these people in Canada, Anne? It's before my time, really. But they were like household names. Like it was tame earlier evening version of Saturday Night Live that it was just like a sketch show. But they were there are only like five people who live in Canada. So like, of course, they were super famous here and everyone knew who they were. (laughs) There's only like two television shows on at any time. When watching this, I was genuinely curious what the few people who knew SCTV 
felt like bringing their kid to a movie where they saw both Catherine O'Hara and John Candy have scenes together. It must have been wild. And I wonder the same thing about fans of the movie After Hours, which I think came out four years before this and which featured John Hurd and Catherine O'Hara as oh, yeah. dangerous downtown types. <laughs> in, in Soho. <laughs> in dangerous Soho. Soho. After Dark, yeah. I I mean, I just, I've been thinking about, like, why is this movie a classic? Because I watched the trailer for this, and, like, it just feels like the trailer to 300 other early 90s sort of family comedies that I've seen, you know? And Because you used to get a tape, and they would have the coming soon, and then you would watch six trailers, and you'd be like, I, one of those seems like something a human being would watch on purpose. And the trailer is like, when the McAllisters went on vacation... They left something behind, you know, and then they reveal it. And it just feels like any other movie (laughs) of the time that wanted to, like, come out and scoop up a little cash. There is just something about it. What do you guys think? It feels like a tremendous amount of energy of some kind went into this. That's a vague way to put it. But It's like the Trans-Siberian Orchestra of Movies. Ah, it is. It's like there's Christmas music and then there's the Trans-Siberian Orchestra. <laughs> and like, I feel like Chris Colum- Christopher Columbus or Chris, Col- Chris Columbus, what do we call him? Is that what we call him? Sure. Yeah, that's his name on the screen. He's like Chris Columbus. I mean, he made the first three, I believe, Harry Potter movies. Like he makes whimsy. He kills it in the whimsy department. He loves twinkly lights. <laughs> he knows how to how to please the Pinterest crowd. He's like, you know what you want? You want some floating fucking candles. That's what you want. We've also been talking as we've been doing these Christmas movie episodes about like what maketh a Christmas movie. And like this movie is so Christmassy. Mm. Yeah, I remember you said on on Twitter, even the like the way the house is decorated, like the the color scheme <laughs> of the wallpaper is Christmassy. <laughs> right? This is the most confusing thing, actually. Like I really want to know because they have the most Christmassy house that you could have in a way where like it doesn't look like you are too attached to Christmas. Like, I do think that it would look really out of season in summer because I think they have, like, a dark green accent wall, red flocked wallpaper, and just everything in their house is red and green. It's just on Christmas theme, and I kind of watched as this debate happened on Twitter around the concept of, like, well, they're very wealthy. Like, what if they just redo their house seasonally? And I was like, that seems like more effort than is reasonable. The wallpaper? No. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, they are rich, but, like, they're also clearly not great at project management. So I think their house just looks like this. (laughs) (laughs) And the other thing, before we get into who the actual dads are, because I would argue that Kevin's dad is pretty irrelevant in this movie as far as dads go. He really is. The other thing I noticed for the first time while actually paying attention to this movie is like why they lose Kevin. And it's because they lose power. Yeah. There was a time when you could lose power and it would fuck up your whole day because, you know, your clocks would go off. Because your clock radio. Totally. Exactly. The thing on which your whole life depends, the clock radio. <laughs> exactly. This movie has a, has a logic behind it. Like they rushed while they were doing the head count. The girl who had the least incentive to care about losing a child did it haphazardly and counted a kid who, who wasn't even related mm. to her. And then we end up losing a kid, which I do feel like we can all relate to one time or two times having a big whoopsie. Oh, yeah. Do you worry about losing your kid, Anne? 
<laughs> I mean, yeah, I've had moments where, you know, we've been in a big department store and we've gotten separated because he's wandered off and, uh, and it's, it's terrifying. Do they make the circular racks anymore? That a kid can get inside of and just stand quietly inside of. I definitely did that one time. One time. And thank God I only learned about this after. So he goes to a summer camp at the big natural history museum here. And uh, they were doing some kind of like circle time by an exhibit and somebody was teaching them or whatever. And he just wandered off Mm. and they couldn't find him and they had to like call security. My gosh. But in his mind, he was never lost because he knows the museum really well. He always knew where he was and he had had some conflict with the leader and he was like, I'm just going to go early to the lunchroom. Oh, my goodness. I think the funny thing is that parents and kids often have fear responses to completely different stuff. And we seem to actually be united on this somewhat rarely. Yeah, I remember as a kid often being so infected by my mom's anxiety Mm. about a situation, often situations that turned out to be innocuous. But, you know, that's definitely something that my sisters and I talk about and and something that I worry about with my own kid, transmitting my ongoing anxious feelings. Yeah, totally. Totally. That's a real thing. I bet Kevin has it hard from here on out. (laughs) Well, Evan not because they managed to lose him in almost exactly the same way with less of an excuse for it not two years later so i'm not going to accept home alone 2 as canon anymore (laughs) yeah you've got a yeah i don't think it is canon i think it's like a dream that kevin had after having too much goose it's a fever dream trump had after he encountered a little kid at his uh tower yeah he wakes up and he's like the turtle doves the lady with the pigeons what does it mean The lady with the pigeons. They replaced the crazy old man that people confuse as a serial killer with a crazy lady with pigeons. It's so good. I love that lady. Brenda Fricker, a light in my life. So, okay, this is just a good segue to set up who I think posit some of these dad issues we should work through. One being the men who break into Kevin's home and want to kill him. Two, being uh, Kevin's dad, again, who's uh, pretty insignificant or irrelevant. He's sleepy because he has a secret job in a downtown bar, intimidating Griffin (laughs) Dunn. (laughs) And humor. Yeah, oh my God. His whole scene in in After Hours is fantastic. I just want to throw in After Hours references whenever possible. I'm sorry. In the off chance that Griffin Dunn is listening, I would love for him to know how much we love him. (laughs) Big fans, Griffin. Big, big fans. And then the third is... A man who lives next door, who some people think is a serial killer. I think by some people you mean Buzz. Like, we don't even know if this is accepted myth. This could be just something Buzz is making up. Sarah, there is no way that Buzz was creative enough to come up with an independent narrative. Uh, (laughs) Wow, you know what's funny is that that didn't occur to me. Because I was like, Buzz sucks. But, like, when I was a kid, I used to make up absolutely bullshit made up scary stories to scare other children with. And I recognize that behave, but yeah, I can see him not being a creative child. He does have a spider. I think that's rather cool of him. Plus during the scene in the church, the old man, you might've heard some scary stories. Right. That's right. You're right. So yeah, Buzz is just repeat. uh, It's head cannon (laughs) in their neighborhood. (laughs) (laughs) About that man. Yeah. I mean, to be fair, being like, an old grizzled man who doesn't talk and doesn't have a family and has the pale blue eyes of a 
of a, I don't even know, of Quint. <laughs> and who, you know, silently shovels the sidewalks, which is exactly the kind of pro-social behavior that Americans see as creepy. What are they going to think? <laughs> and his relationship is not just his relationship with Kevin, but we learn that he has uh, an alienated, uh, strange relationship with his son, that Kevin, an eight-year-old who has been lost by his family, counsels him through. <laughs> well, and to yes. the point of who the dads are in this movie, I would also argue Kevin is a dad. Oh, oh yeah. my God. Yeah. yeah. How so, Anne? Well, you know, he has to be his own dad when his yeah. family is gone. And he does a lot of kind of emulating dad behaviors, like putting on the aftershave. Uh, I don't know. He's like goes shopping and does the laundry and orders pizza yeah the aftershave thing really is like dad cosplay that never occurred to me well and this came up in the introduction of our of our episode about christmas vacation but uh, john hughes incredibly conservative i read this article about him in which his friend pj o'rourke who was the national lampoon alumnus with john hughes said that hughes was to the right of rush limbaugh what oh my god no wonder he advocates giving your undies to geeks honestly <laughs> I don't, I don't remember if this was O'Rourke saying this on his behalf or the article saying it, but it was drawing parallels where like this is ultimately at the end of the movie, a, a movie about someone learning how to like be absolutely self-sufficient, be their own government, be kind of like their own form of protection, protect themselves from the invading outsider, etc. <laughs> Yeah, which is funny, too, because, like, Chris Columbus movies in this period, I'm really just talking about this movie and Adventures and Babysitting. These movies are amazing, and they're both set in Chicago, although Adventures and Babysitting is filmed in Toronto in a way I assume is very obvious. And it's, like, one of the movies about which people like to say the urban legend, which I don't know if this has actually happened, but it's, it's very believable to me that, like, there's an American movie being filmed in Canada and they've like dressed a set with a bunch of garbage to make it look like an American alleyway. And then the sanitation workers come and clean it all up and they're like, Oh no. <laughs> but these are both movies about kids from the suburbs having to relate to city people like Chicago suburbs, kids having some kind of a relationship with the people of Chicago. I don't know why Chicago. What's all that about? <laughs> And what is it like to live in the, the upside down of Chicago, which is where we go to depict it? Chicago's like the, the second city, right? Mm -hmm. But but Toronto is also the second city, which is why we had second city television here with Catherine O'Hara. Yeah, I think Toronto and Chicago both have relationship to New York of of feeling mm -hmm. like they are the second city in North America. And I feel like these are both places where you go to get like a vast city, like a city that could potentially contain anything. I don't know how Chicago has felt historically, but I remember going to New York for my first times in like the 90s and it never feeling like New York was promised to me in movies that I grew up watching, meaning terrifying. Yeah. And I didn't ever feel terrifying in Chicago, but I certainly, it certainly felt like more shit was going on per square inch than New York ever felt like. Same with Baltimore. It was like stuff happens. <laughs> this is maybe just me projecting my cinematic memories, but like, yeah, there's just to me a feeling of like being inside of a, a animal that big. There are things happening around me. Which, like, there are things happening in New York, but a lot of them are very expensive, depending on where you are. <laughs> 
to your point about its relationship between the suburbs and suburban Chicago and quote urban Chicago. And these like totally separate worlds, if you're to believe the way the movies depict them. And the feeling that we see come up in horror all the time that like the actual horror is some penetration of the suburb. And like this movie is a horror movie. Like this movie follows the same structure as a horror movie. Yeah. Ah. Yeah. And who built booby traps in her house like six years before this kid? Nancy Thompson. <laughs> I thought we were going in the Saw direction, so I was so confused. Oh, yeah. Well, that's, you know, we'll we'll get into Saw theories later on. Don't worry. <laughs> going back to Hugh's anxieties and the anxieties of, of suburbanites all throughout the country. Like, this movie is about the urban coming to your doorstep and it doing what you fear it's going to do, which is try to murder you. <laughs> And your greatest fear is apparent too, which is that like the urban wants your child and that by coming to this beautiful street with all these lovely homes full of lovely things, you've actually made him a target mm. because you live inside the silver tuna, which is just my favorite. For Let's also talk about how this movie and Goodfellas come out the same year <laughs> and that Joe Pesci, <laughs> God bless him, God bless America, can build a career out of appearing in a family movie and a movie where among other things he kicks a man to death and then they split the difference with my cousin Vinny, and then that was it for 30 years (laughs) (laughs) and then he was like i'm back for the irishman well good night (laughs) and a lot of jazz records character actors that's the job i want (laughs) daniel stern is so good too when i was a kid daniel stern was the dad in little monsters like that was my whole relationship with him oh yeah and he's the voiceover in the wonder years oh, there's yes. like something about criminals are not even allowed but maybe encouraged to be um father figures as well <laughs> <laughs> and and tell us a bit more about the um the sneaky serial killer who lives next door who's not really a serial killer <laughs> he's like a nice grandpa there is an undercurrent of spookiness to him that you can both understand like why the kids in the neighborhood have created this weird serial killer story about him but also like I don't know there is something about him that you're like yeah I bet you do have the kind of energy that you could have said something really shitty to your son that made him not talk to you for like however long um and you know as you guys have talked about in other episodes he does also kind of have that energy of older now nicer dad like lower on testosterone or whatever but um you know no longer has that kind of like fire and anger in him and is a and this is totally like just assumption and projection but I mean he must have done something or said something pretty bad and I think what's relatable to like you know, the experiences we talk about in the show, the experiences we hear from listeners is it's always so great when there is resolution with parent and child. We know it's so hard for people who aren't able to have that. Sometimes you will never be able to have that. And that is difficult. If an eight-year-old running from two men trying to kill him in his own home did not connect with this man at a church and encourage him to call his son, they never would have resolved their shit. Like this could have been an unresolved forever situation, which this guy was a prick to his son, probably. And finally, we see that maybe there's some resolution because his son shows up at the end of the movie. And Kevin fortunately gets to notice it because usually 
you know, you say something to somebody and they do a nice thing and you never hear about it. Kevin gets to watch it, which is all of our fantasy. Like I changed a life. I helped a man. I think that his son comes and he's like, hey, dad, like, let's have our moment indoors where it's warmer. And he's like, no, let's do it in the front yard so Kevin can watch. And all the people <laughs> who think I'm a creepy murderer can see. <laughs> <laughs> we need to change the optics of this whole situation. That's a real dad move. Well, he's also conspicuously shoveling snow, you know, which could also be like, a, you know, he's trying to change the optics and he just, and then whenever someone looks at him, he accidentally turns and like mysteriously glares and then he's like, oh no, I did it again. <laughs> he has the original resting bitch face in every, just every time he looks at somebody, he can't help it. That's what his face looks like. He looks like the old man in the mountain oh he does r.i.p yeah it was interesting how resistant he was because he you know in their conversation which i believe is very sweet i remember it being sweet i liked how scared the man was of the idea of reconciling and apologizing maybe like that felt pretty real he's being told to do this obvious thing and despite him trying to tell kevin about you know whatever he's trying to tell kevin about he can't hear that the very obvious thing is to like reach out and try and and kevin has that very wise line where he says like well even if the answer is no like at least you won't have to wonder anymore this boy is eight years old and he's also like at least for your granddaughter she probably misses you and the presence and you're like yeah pragmatism what sells this movie for me is that it makes Kevin a main character, which kids in movies just aren't very often. And especially in horror, maybe this is because I watch <laughs> a lot of horror movies, but like the kids in horror movies are almost always just there for no reason at all. They're like, we got to make these assholes likable, give them some kids. And then the little girl's like, Toby wants to sleep in my room. And then people are like, oh my God, it's scary when a little girl says it and they're almost <laughs> always used as just a cheap plot device so like when there's a movie where a young kid has agency personality like is respected for being intelligent and kind of immune to a lot of adult bullshit like that's very exciting to me and like this and child's play are two of the, the biggest examples that i can think of that i've watched recently you mean where the kid is like a person a person with depth yeah, where the kid is a person. Because in the original Child's Play, Andy, who's six years old, is a main character. And his relationship with this doll, you know, and the fact that this doll is framing him for murders he didn't commit is the driving force of the movie. And he and it's a role that involves acting. Like, this kid carries the movie and then, you know, he comes back as the franchise goes on. Like, he's meaningful as a character and not just a sort of warm body in Jeopardy, which I think is how kids usually function in fictional and news media. That's such a great point. Yeah, you because the only way that child's play can work is like if you are scared on Andy's behalf and you have to actually like connect with him in that way. I want to shout out uh, Corey Feldman in case he's listening in uh, Friday the 13th <laughs> Part 4. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, he's great in that. Is there a talk about Kevin's relationship with the wet bandits and maybe some father overtones we we see there? I mean, one of the funny things about this movie is that I really remembered the wet bandits being more of a presence in this movie than they are. They sporadically show up and then we really have a big sequence with them 
and like the final act where it's their big showdown with Kevin. But most of the movie is him sort of figuring out, navigating being the man of the house, as Anne said, like doing all of these dad-like things. And also I love the fact that Kevin does laundry. He is on his own for, I think, three days, and he probably has 100 sweaters. Like he does not have to be doing laundry. I'm sure he has enough clean clothes to get through this very small period of time, but he's like, this is my role. I am the man of the house. I'm doing laundry. The family remarks on it in the last like three minutes of the movie. They're like, you did laundry? Yeah. And also you get the sense that he's getting crap at the start of the movie for being the littlest and not knowing how to pack his suitcase and for being les incompetents. And this movie makes me think that he also has that youngest child syndrome of like, he would like to do stuff for himself, but like no one remembers how old he has gotten because he's defined by being younger than everyone else. This is also like some time alone to have a weekend away from the family and like learn some skills. And this seems to be what he wants to do. And yeah, and then the wet bandits are the ultimate competence test. And I would have been happy if you just cleaned the whole house and that could be the big <laughs> test because cleaning is really hard. But instead, you know, I, he has this showdown with these two adult men and it feels like you know, this movie feels actually to me similar to a lot of movies that often tend to have girl protagonists, like Ventures and Babysitting and also like The Wizard of Oz, this sort of narrative where, or, or Labyrinth, where basically you go off into this alternate world and have this adventure where you discover what you're truly capable of and then you bring all that confidence back to the real world and you're like, nothing's different, but everything's different. For a girl that's like rejecting David Bowie's sexual advances or murdering a witch. And for <laughs> Kevin, it's uh, giving a lot of head trauma to and then apprehending criminals. <laughs> I think there's a couple ways to read Kevin's progression. You can read it in sort of the, as the conservative allegory of someone who comes into their own and becomes self-sufficient. You can read it as just sometimes we need space in order to grow. And I think that those are extremely important things, but I yeah. said this in jest, but then realized that it was true. when I said it is that it feels like a peck and paw movie. Like it changes into straw dogs for 20 minutes. <laughs> oh yeah. It is straw dogs. Totally. It is exactly. straw. It's like a family movie about a kid in hijinks. And then it's straw dogs. It's straw puppies. Cause it's straw dogs, but it's real cute. Cause yeah, literally the ending of straw dogs is that, you know, the final act, Dustin Hoffman is just protecting his home as if it is a medieval castle and he's under siege and he's just doing whatever it takes. And the question is just how much of that gore that would naturally result from these pretty significant shocks <laughs> to the body are you going to show? This is one of the reasons this movie was never in circulation in my house when I was growing up is because my mom is a doctor and she doesn't like the Three Stooges and she doesn't like slapstick violence. She doesn't like realistic violence in movies either, but I I think share with her the aversion to depictions of violence that make it look like it's going to leave less of a dent than it is. Because like one thing you can say about the Saw movies, <laughs> they make it look really painful to have to go through any of the stuff that they're saying is happening to these characters. They don't make it look like you could walk away from it. And I appreciate that. And as someone who had this movie in your, in your youth, did you feel menaced by these two? Hmm. No, although like Sarah and like almost everyone I have 
talked to who watched it as a kid, my memory of it as a kid is that 75% of the movie is him defending the house against the criminals. And yeah, it is weird when you come back and watch it and you're like, oh, it's only like the last 10 minutes of the movie. I mean, it's that same way. It's the same way as like when you realize as an adult that Jurassic Park only has 13 minutes of dinosaurs. Wow. I had not put that together. Those dinosaurs are really effectively salted throughout that film. Totally. And made alive by the the tension and character development in the rest of the movie in the same way that this one that this one is. It's almost like we don't want to see dinosaurs as much as we want to see people reacting to dinosaurs. <laughs> I think we should talk about Catherine O'Hara's journey in this movie. She's the other protagonist, I think. Like, it's Kevin and then her and then I guess the wet bandits and then the old man. John Hughes, like many people, was traumatized by traveling in this country at some point or many points <laughs> because her journey right down to meeting John Candy is the planes, trains, and automobiles journey yeah. of planes, trains, and automobiles. She just can't say the F word. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly. So many impressions about Catherine O'Hara's development over time. Anne, how did she strike you? Yeah, I mean, I guess I think she's a good mom. <laughs> I don't know if that really speaks to her development, but... She reminds me of Jesus, because like, I feel like... A big chunk of the Jesus parables are like, if you had a million sheep and you lost one sheep, would you just be like, whatever? No, you would go find that sheep. Fuck all the other sheep. And as a kid, I was like, this seems unpragmatic, but I get that it's an allegory. And like Catherine O'Hara, just, I appreciate, I think we've talked a lot on this show about how parents make themselves lovable in movies by their willingness to learn. And like, she's correcting the thing that she didn't do before, it feels like. I wonder what we're supposed to take away from the fact that, you know, she goes on this epic journey. She goes through all these kind of trials <laughs> and trials and bartering away her jewelry and like has to ride in a van with John Candy and whatever, only to arrive home at the same time as the rest <laughs> of the <world. laughs> Like in the end, nothing she did mattered. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. yeah, that's such a good point. And again, this is so clearly how, it, through his track record, Hughes feels about traveling, uh, period. But, but I think the point is that she suffered and that's what the movie needs her to do. I love this scene. And again, I mean, it's, it's so beautiful because her and Candy obviously have at this point you know more than a decade of of experience together in scenes and their chemistry is so great i love the conversation when they're in the polka van and candy's just giving a rundown of how bad everyone are as parents yeah and i'm glad i didn't notice that as a kid to be honest but like you get the idea that this movie shows the hand of parents and lets you know that all of them have some stuff that they're working through in order to connect with their children if they're even trying in the first place. Yeah. And I also love that scene because you can kind of, you can really see that Catherine O'Hara is trying not to lose it. <laughs> <laughs> I also feel like there have been many years now where people have known who Catherine O'Hara is and like how wonderful she is, but we have never known it as deeply as this year or like certainly I haven't because I think one of the real joys of her work for me is that she has been creating this unfurling scroll of a body of work for decades now where you can watch her in comedic and musical partnerships with the same people over time, just watching her and Eugene Levy play off each other over time. Like it's, I don't know, to me, like watching performers work together on different projects 
and sort of unearth different parts of each other and have, you know, not just their individual work mature, but these, these group projects mature is just, I don't know. It's like, it's been very life affirming for me to see her work this year. And it's been a very Catherine O'Hara year for me. Yeah. Yeah. And I think especially her and Eugene Levy, it's like the perfect proof that men and women can just be friends <laughs> but, and lots of chemistry together but have no Oof. romance off the screen although i think they did briefly date in the 70s oh wow you had i guess briefly date in the 70s yeah. and it was the it 70s with. i mean you just had to briefly date whoever was right right everyone briefly dated from what i've heard yeah, yeah this goes back sarah to the in i'm gonna get probably a little too cheesy here but like this goes back to the question that you were talking about initially where it's like why does this movie work and i think that chris columbus and john hughes are people who are notorious for bringing ensemble players in together who have chemistry they already know this with macaulay culkin because he's been an uncle buck Mm. and this is what i love about Catherine O'Hare. i feel like this is what a lot of people love about her and eugene levy is like these are people i legitimately believe have a lot of love in them You see that come through and i believe that about macaulay culkin from everything i know about him like these are people who who are acting for sure but in john candy you see like love exude from them in a way that you typically don't see in movies that are like hijinks comedy of errors like what's gonna happen stop or my kid will shoot exactly Exactly. (laughs) and you said it so perfectly is like watching Catherine O'Hara try not to crack in this scene with someone who's clearly a friend is beautiful and you don't get that luxury in a lot of these kinds of movies yeah I love the story he tells us he left his kid at a funeral home and it traumatized this kid and she doesn't want to hear anymore. (laughs) Do you think he he must have ad-libbed that? That feels ad-libbed to me. Yeah. (laughs) There's something about John Candy. He's not necessary to the movie. You know, you need Catherine O'Hara to have some weird way to get to Chicago, basically. But like, he doesn't need to be there. He's like exactly the right flavor of cheerfully inept basically, just at peace with himself. The same as in the Blues Brothers. I don't think I would love that movie nearly as much as I do if he he wasn't the sort of presence stitching it all together. I just want to access the part of myself that is like this person. (laughs) (laughs) Tell me, have you ever gone on vacation and left your child home? But I did leave one at a funeral parlor once. Yeah, it was, uh, it was terrible, too. You know, I was all distraught and everything, you know, the wife and I. We left the, the little tyke there in the funeral parlor all day. Now, he was okay, you know, after six, seven weeks. And I came around, started talking again. But he's okay. You know, they get over it. Kids are resilient like that. Maybe we shouldn't talk about this. Well, you brought it up. I was just, I you know, trying well, to cheer I'm you up. I'm sorry, I did. I think the movie speaks to something that's both often fantasy we don't want to admit to and also our deepest horror which is that one day we will wake up and our families will be gone (laughs) oh Oh, man it's not just a structural horror it's also like all the best of them an existential horror (laughs) yeah and for me I was thinking about it when I was re-watching it and I guess definitely one of the reasons it resonates with me speaking of dads is that when my dad left my mom one day he just didn't come home from work and he didn't 
call her for three days. So for three days, she didn't know where he was. He'd kind of pulled that kind of stunt before. So she didn't think he was dead or in a hospital or something, but he just like vanished. And then three days later called and said, well, I guess you've figured out by now that I've left you. Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh, that's wild. Yeah. So I was like, oh, my own experience is that people like family members can just one day vanish into the ether and holy shit like i didn't i didn't realize until you just made those connections that the real horror in that is like also my when i was in the sixth grade going into the seventh grade my parents moved to massachusetts with me we were all moving to massachusetts and my dad didn't And no one told me that that was the separation. Oh my God. So God, you're right. The horror of knowing that at some point it might just cease. Holy shit. My dad never disappeared. Like not even once. The opposite horror. (laughs) Like what if dad just stays here forever? Wow. We're all on the opposite ends of the spectrum in a fun way. Mine is less traumatic. Mine is different, but... I would say that I certainly had that Kevin hope and then never had to deal with the consequences. And I think, (laughs) you know, having half of the transaction makes you watch this movie one way. (laughs) Ian, how would you describe this movie to someone uh, who has not seen it? What would be your selling point? I think my selling point would be Catherine (laughs) O'Hara. It's a movie with Catherine O'Hara. That's all you have to know. Sarah? He he has to uh, continually assault a pair of career criminals. Mm. Are they career criminals? Is this the beginning of what they hope is a fruitful career? Yeah, good question. They're failed career criminals because, I forget what name plays in that movie, whatever that fake angels movie is. Angels with filthy souls or something. Yes. Yeah. Harry says to Marv, one of the names that he heard and Marv doesn't recognize that name from the streets. <laughs> uh, I know all the guys, but they're just bad at doing what they do. They don't dress like people who've been successful in the crime arena. They dress like they are ringing the bell for the Salvation Army. <laughs> I love Joe Pesci's coat in this movie. And I also noticed for the first time in this movie, I mean, talk about extraordinary white upper middle class suburban privilege. There is a cop or someone who's pretending to be a cop standing in their house for 10 whole minutes before anyone <laughs> is even nervous about it, maybe. Or <laughs> uh-huh. And these kids are just being rude to him. And they're just like, there's a cop here. It's fine. Yeah, he's rude and dismissive. <laughs> Can you tip the pizza boy? I will after I rob your house. <laughs> Was your final pitch about this movie to somebody? Well, my pitch about this movie is the thing that, to me, most completely escaped my memory of it until I watched it all these times this year, which is that it has a John Williams score, which I know I bring up a lot, but I just find that amazing. I always find it weird when John Williams does a score for someone other than Steven Spielberg or George Lucas, because I presume that he just doesn't have that much time. And then he also <laughs> did some Harry Potter music, and which makes sense because Chris Columbus But yeah, this movie has a beautiful, lush John Williams score that includes original Christmas music that doesn't feel new or made specifically for this movie. And it's just really lovely. And I think that if you're put off by the whole criminals getting hit in the head by paint cans thing, like that's not that much of the movie, weirdly enough. And there's just like a lot of a lot of lovely uh, Christmas vibes in it. And maybe if if you don't feel like watching the movie 
or are not sold by this, like put on the soundtrack and that might convince you. Mm. Sarah, do you want to pose the question to the group? Oh, yeah. Okay. So we know who the dad is or who a couple of dads are. We've got John Hurd and Uncle Jerry. Who is the daddy in this film? Interpret however you want. Is it who are you attracted to in a daddy style way? Is it who contains the essence of dadness in a way that other people don't? You can take it however you want. And historically, often if there's a strong woman in the movie, she has gotten a lot of daddy cred. (laughs) Yeah, okay. Then I would say Catherine O'Hara is the daddy Mm -hmm. in this movie. What about her stands out in that way? She's like the take charge one. She's the one that she's like, I am going to get back as soon as possible. I will sleep in this airport until I can go on standby. I will sell my jewelry. I will endure John Candy. She is really the much more active partner, whereas the the actual dad is really quite passive. It's funny because when I was telling my son about doing this podcast and what it was called and kind of the conceit of it, and he was like, that's a weird movie to do for Why Our Dads because the dad doesn't really do anything. (laughs) Your son is totally right. (laughs) Yeah, because he's just there. I'm going with John Candy because because this is like the kind of dadly energy that if it's going to come from like a literal dad type person, this is the kind of dadliness I want in my life. Just sort of cheerful, like showing up, doing his best, acknowledging his and everyone else's mistakes and, and pressing on. And also he's the person in this airport who sees this woman who's really struggling, trying to get reunited with her kid. No one cares. No one is helping. And he's the one who's like, you can come in our polka van. Yeah, he's he's a helpful bystander, which which exists in the real world. But as far as popular myth goes, don't exist at all. And he's allowed to be a, a helpful bystander because he's from Wisconsin, which is <laughs> the north, north, north suburbs of Chicago as far as this movie is concerned. But it is weird in a, in a, in a John Candy way. The... Uh, <laughs> the Juarez of of Toronto, if you will. <laughs> I mean, this was a nod to SCTV, right? Though, because like I think that he was a polka character in SCTV. Yeah, this was a time when in the Midwest, like polka was still. I mean, it still is a big deal, but like it was a big, big deal still, which is amazing. The my my entry for who is the daddy is a serial killer neighbor, strictly a sexual comment. And it's because if you dressed him like Jeff Goldblum dresses today, that guy would be fucking hot. Like his eyes are wild. His beard is great. He's all angles. And again, put him in a Goldblum hat with some leather jacket around some, you know, Goldblum's always hanging out with a 29 year olds. And that guy looks fantastic. Yeah, I like this. Alex, I would support you getting some kind of a makeover show for like scary people in 90s movies (laughs) silver turquoise jewelry a little bit of that this guy is (laughs) and this has been a delight oh thank you so much for having me it's been so much fun thank you so much for doing it Okay, all that is it for this week's episode. Thank you, as always, to Carolyn Kendrick for producing the episode and for making it sound great. Always, always, always. And for directing and putting together the music, uh, which is such an extraordinary part of this show. Carolyn has an EP called Tear Things Apart, and it's high time you give it a listen. A lot of people ask 
how they can hear Carolyn outside of the show, and that is one of the ways. Uh, Tear Things Apart is the name of the EP recorded in Nashville last year. And thank you so much to Fresh Lesh, who provides beats for many of our shows. Lesh has been in the Bay Area hip-hop, jazz, and funk scene since 1994. Since, let's see, Ace Ventura Pet Detective came out in the theater, I believe. You can find Lesh at freshlesh.com next week we are going to be looking at batman returns through the old dad lens no special guests on that go just sarah me bruce selena oswald max and an underground anarchist circus you can find us on instagram and on twitter and also on patreon and we appreciate you thank you as always for spending this time with us 